This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Anesthetic Considerations in Pulmonary Hypertension by Dr. Stephanie Grant. Hello, my name is Stephanie Grant, and today I'm going to be talking to you about pulmonary hypertension. The goals of today's talk are to talk about perioperative management of pulmonary hypertension, including during the preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative time. We will also talk about pulmonary hypertensive crisis. Background. Pulmonary hypertension is a rare disease in neonates, infants, and children. Patients with pulmonary hypertension present for cardiac and non-cardiac surgery and for general anesthesia and sedation. Pulmonary hypertension is associated with significant morbidity and mortality and poses an increased perioperative risk. Patients with pulmonary hypertension have increased risk of arrhythmias, cardiac arrest, and death during the perioperative time. This graph depicts three different studies. The small green bar, which is on the left of each grouping, shows the Pediatric Perioperative Cardiac Arrest Registry. This depicted a study which involved all patients regardless of diagnosis and regardless of surgery that they were having. The incidence of cardiac arrest in these patients was very small at 0.014%, and of those patients, the risk of death was 0.0036%. The study depicted in the red bar indicates a study of patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension who had general anesthesia for procedures in the cardiac cath lab and also for non-cardiac surgery. The incidence of cardiac arrest in these patients was 1.17% and the incidence of death in these patients was 0.78%. These studies indicate that the incidence of cardiac arrest and death is significantly higher in patients with pulmonary hypertension this study indicates that uh, the perioperative complications are directly related to the severity of pulmonary arterial hypertension. Patients with suprasystemic right ventricular pressures have greater complications during surgery than patients with less severe forms of pulmonary hypertension. The baseline suprasystemic pulmonary arterial hypertension is a significant predictor of major complications during anesthesia. This table is a non-validated tool that looks at patients who may have low-risk or high-risk complications during general anesthesia. The patients are grouped into low-risk or high-risk based on patient factors, surgery factors, as well as the anesthetic factors involved. Case example part one. Let's look at a case as an example of a patient with pulmonary hypertension. The patient is a 15-year-old male who is evaluated prior to an open reduction internal fixation of his tibia. The patient sustained this fracture after falling while skateboarding. The patient was diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension one year ago after a syncopal event. He reports occasional dyspnea on exertion, but is otherwise doing okay. His past medical history includes idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, he has never had surgery, and his medications include sildenafil, and he uses nasal cannula oxygen just at night. What is your anesthetic plan for this patient? Preoperative anesthetic management. The preoperative management for this patient and any patient with pulmonary hypertension should include a visit to the pre-op clinic if possible. A thorough history and physical should be performed for the patient 
and review of any echo and cath lab reports that the patient may have. For a patient with an echo report, it is important to look at the most recent echo report, specifically looking at the patient's anatomy and if the patient has any pop-off. A pop-off is a left-to-right shunt, which may convert to a right-to-left shunt if the patient has an acute event and the right ventricular pressures begin to increase in the heart and are greater than the left pressures. This is important because it serves to decompress the right side of the heart and to increase cardiac output. On the echo report, it is also important to look at the patient's function, look at the patient's pulmonary arterial pressure, as well as the right ventricular pressure. In our case example, looking at the echo report, we see that this patient has a flattened septal position in systole, which is consistent with right ventricular pressures greater than one-half systemic levels. This indicates that the patient does have an increased risk for complications during surgery due to the greater than one-half systemic levels. This patient also has qualitatively good biventricular systolic function, which is a good sign. On catheterization reports, it is important to look at the pulmonary arterial pressure, looking at the systolic, diastolic, and mean levels. Also look at the right ventricular pressure, the pulmonary vascular resistance, the structure of the heart, the function of the heart, to look at measured wedge pressures, as well as the results of vasoactive testing. For our sample patient, his cardiac catheterization report indicated that at baseline, his right ventricle systolic pressure was 72 millimeters mercury and systemic pressure was 100 millimeters mercury. This indicates that his right ventricle pressure is greater than one half systemic, meaning that this places him at greater risk for complications during general anesthesia. During vasoreactive testing at baseline of 21% oxygen, the patient had a mean pulmonary arterial pressure of 50 and a pulmonary vascular resistance of 10.6. During vasoreactive testing with 100% oxygen and exposure to inhaled nitric oxide, both his mean pulmonary artery pressure and pulmonary vascular resistance did decrease. This was a mild decrease, but does indicate that he does have basoreactivity within his pulmonary vasculature and would respond well to inhaled nitric oxide or 100% oxygen if he does have an acute event during surgery. It is important to discuss the post-op plan with the patient's cardiologist or an ICU physician. It's important in these patients to minimize NPO times, avoiding dehydration and decreased preload during the pre-op time. It's also very important to prepare emergency drugs before the patient even enters the operating room. These include having things such as inotropes, including epinephrine ready, inhaled nitric oxide available and in the operating room, and to also consider ECMO on standby, depending on the severity of the patient. Intraoperative anesthetic management. For anesthetic management of this patient, it is important to give an adequate pre-medication, including a benzodiazepine or even ketamine. It's important to have a calm patient because crying, screaming, and agitated patient will lead to increased pulmonary vascular resistance, will lead to changes that will cause an acute event for pulmonary hypertension. If the patient is on a pulmonary vasodilator, such as a targeted therapy, it is important to continue this medication during the perioperative time. The main goals of an anesthetic management for patients with pulmonary hypertension is to avoid increases in pulmonary vascular resistance and avoid decreases in systemic vascular resistance. Decreases in systemic vascular resistance will lead to changes that cause decreased coronary perfusion pressure and decreased oxygen delivery to the myocardium, leading to ischemia, 
which may precipitate a pulmonary hypertensive crisis. For these patients, it is important to place standard ASA monitors on the patient before induction, and depending on the case in the patient, to determine if an arterial line is needed. Induction of these patients, it's important to use a balanced anesthetic technique. It's important to maintain a dedicated IV if the patient comes to the operating room already on a pulmonary vasodilator infusion. Stopping this infusion even for a brief second for induction can lead and precipitate to an acute pulmonary hypertensive crisis. An IV induction is preferred for these patients. However, it is possible to do an inhalational induction on these patients if the patient has adequate ventricular function. The potential problem with an inhalational induction is that if you lose the patient's airway, the patient will begin to hypoventilate, become hypercarbic. This will lead to acidosis and eventually hypoxia, which is going to cause the patient to have an acute pulmonary hypertensive crisis. The ideal anesthetic for pulmonary hypertension includes one in which it causes pulmonary vasodilation, maintains cardiac contractility, maintains systemic vascular resistance, and also maintains cardiac output. However, an ideal anesthetic for pulmonary hypertension does not exist. We have our drugs that we are very familiar with, our volatile anesthetics and our IV anesthetic agents. However, each is not a perfect anesthetic for pulmonary hypertension. Most have good qualities, but also have an element that causes hemodynamic instability, potentially for a patient with pulmonary hypertension. The use of ketamine in patients with pulmonary hypertension has been controversial in the past. However, a study by Dr. Paul Hickey at Boston Children's Hospital indicated that ketamine does not change the pulmonary vascular resistance unless the patient also is hypoventilating and becomes hypercarbic. A balanced anesthetic technique is the best technique for patients with pulmonary hypertension. This technique includes sub-anesthetic doses of multiple anesthetics in order to achieve an anesthetic state. The anesthetic management for airway of these patients is selected based on the procedure. If the patient is to be intubated, there needs to be an adequate depth of anesthesia before intubation is achieved. An LMA can be used, however, is it important to avoid hypoventilation in order to avoid hypercarbia, which can lead to increases in pulmonary vascular resistance. For maintenance of these patients, it is important to continue the depth of anesthetic that is adequate for the stimulus. A volatile inhalational anesthetic or a total intravenous anesthetic can be used for maintenance of these patients. For ventilation of these patients, it is very important to avoid hypercarbia and respiratory acidosis, which both can lead to increases in the pulmonary vascular resistance, as well as avoiding excessively low or high tidal volumes, which both can increase the pulmonary vascular resistance. And it is also important to avoid excessive low or high peak inspiratory pressures, which will lead to an increased pulmonary vascular resistance, as well as avoiding increases in PEEP, which will increase pulmonary vascular resistance. The emergence of these patients, it is very important to minimize noxious stimuli. Suctioning the endotracheal tube or the patient's oropharynx should be done while the patient is under a deep plane of anesthesia. Tracheal suction and oropharyngeal suction have been known to precipitate an acute pulmonary hypertensive crisis. It is very important to have a smooth and calm extubation of these patients. Postoperative anesthetic management. 
It is important to have adequate post-op monitoring for patients with pulmonary hypertension. If the patient is to be monitored in the PACU versus the ICU depends on patient factors, surgical factors, and anesthetic factors. It is very important in the postoperative course to provide adequate analgesia and anti-emesis and also to avoid hypoxia, hypotension, and hypovolemia. It is very important to be prepared when you have a patient with pulmonary hypertension and to always stay two steps ahead of potential changes that can occur in these patients. Case example, part two. Let's go back to our sample case, a 15-year-old male with past medical history of pulmonary hypertension for an ORIF of his tibia. The patient received a pre-med consisting of midazolam, and on induction, a balanced anesthetic technique was used with fentanyl, ketamine, propofol, and rocuronium. The patient remained stable on induction. He had an easy intubation and was also hemodynamically stable on, during intubation. However, 30 minutes after incision, the patient suddenly had a decrease in oxygen saturation, blood pressure, and intidal carbon dioxide. What is your differential diagnosis, and what are you going to do to treat this patient? Pulmonary hypertensive crisis. Patients with pulmonary hypertension, you should always think if, if the patient decompensates, the first thing that should be on your differential diagnosis is a pulmonary hypertensive crisis. The definition of pulmonary hypertensive crisis is an acute on chronic increase in pulmonary vascular resistance resulting from an acute increase in vascular tone of the reactive portion of the pulmonary vasculature. During these changes, a rapid increase in pulmonary vascular resistance will lead to an increased right ventricular afterload, causing right ventricular pressure to increase which will in turn lead to decreases in the left ventricular preload, decreases in coronary perfusion pressure, and eventually causing ischemia, which will lead to changes such as hypoxia and acidosis, which will further increase this cycle. During an acute event, it is possible to have cardiac arrest with low cardiac outputs. If the patient does develop cardiac arrest, it may be difficult to resuscitate these patients. CPR may be ineffective due to an enlarged right ventricular size that compresses the left ventricle, causing ineffective cardiac output. Pulmonary hypertensive crisis can happen at any time during the perioperative period, and this can occur even hours after the intraoperative time. Intraoperative findings of pulmonary hypertensive crisis include sudden desaturation, systemic hypotension, decreases in intidal CO2, sinus tachycardia, elevated central venous pressure, and a new onset EKG change of RV strain or ischemia, as well as bradycardia, which is an ominous sign of impending cardiac arrest. If you have access to a transesophageal echocardiograph, you will see that the right ventricle is dilated and poorly contracting, as well as an underfilled left ventricle, and you will see pulmonary regurgitation and tricuspid regurgitation, as well as elevated right ventricular pressures. For treatment of a pulmonary hypertensive crisis, it is important to get rid of the stimulating event and to stabilize the patient. It is important to administer 100% oxygen to the patient. Oxygen is a vasodilator and will vasodilate the pulmonary vasculature. It is also important to hyperventilate the patient. Hyperventilation will lead to decreases in carbon dioxide levels and therefore vasodilate the pulmonary vasculature. It's also important to exclude other causes that may mimic a pulmonary hypertensive crisis, such as a pneumothorax. It's important to decrease mean arterial pressures if possible. 
and to correct metabolic acidosis. Acidosis will lead to increases in pulmonary vascular resistance and further increase the acute event. It is also important to support the heart of the patient, providing an inotrope such as epinephrine. If the patient is in the middle of surgery, it's important to administer proper analgesia to get rid of any noxious stimuli which may be precipitating an event. It is also important to initiate ECMO early in these patients in order to stabilize the patient and provide adequate cardiac output to the patient. If the patient does develop cardiac arrest, it is very important to start PALS algorithm. However, keep in mind that CPR may be ineffective due to the enlarged right ventricle compressing the left ventricle and leading to decreased cardiac output. Today's pulmonary hypertension talk, the teaching points are, pulmonary hypertension is associated with significant morbidity and mortality in the perioperative time. Careful planning is very important preoperatively, and pulmonary hypertensive crisis can occur both intra-op and post-op. Thank you very much. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.